Welcome back, everybody. I'm James Schaefer, and yes, you can call me Jim. This is EdUp International, the exciting podcast for international education professionals out there. Today is a very special day. We have an incredible guest. She's a leading voice within the education world for over 30 years. She was also a mentor to me and a mentor to thousands of others of international education professionals. She is an F1 regulations guru, a J1 regulations guru, a language training regulations guru, a high school regulations guru. She's been running her own business for 30 years. I'm gonna start with a little internship that she's gonna tell us about this is an internship where she was in a house, not an office building. So here she is. She's the founder and president of IETS, International Education Training Services, the one and only June sadowski Devarez. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. My goodness, I retired three years ago and I was really surprised to be asked to do this but it's an honor to be here with all of you and talk a little bit about IETS and uh, hopefully things you'll be interested in. Well, my internship that Jim alluded to was definitely in a house, but it was a big white house in Washington, DC at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And in 1966, I was a junior in college and I participated in what was called the Washington Semester Program. And we were required to do projects, internships, or whatever you wanted to do as part of your activity there in Washington. And I got this bright idea that I wanted to do cover NBC News White House correspondent uh, on at, while he conducted his duties at the White House. So I got in touch with this wonderful man named Ray Scherer, and he said, yes, um, come, and if you're interested in what I do, you can follow me around. So for six months, I followed him around in the White House and watched what the world of the White House correspondent consisted of, and LBJ was president of the United States, for those of you who don't know that far back, and he was quite a character to observe. <laughs> so that's I, my story of the White House. I, I think uh, a junior year as an intern in the White House, uh, I don't know of anybody who's had a better internship in their junior year, uh, so LBJ all the way, uh, I do, uh, I do appreciate the name, that name of, uh, of, uh, the embassy correspondent actually rings a bell with me. So I, I think when I was a young child watching the news, he was often reporting in the seventies, still from the white house. Oh so yeah, I... he, he was still uh, active at that time. And he was a, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he, um, he gave me some real tips about how to manage LBJ and I had a lot of fun. That's all I can tell you. It was really a great experience. And when I went back to um, my college campus, my academic advisor said, what, how are you going to follow this June? <laughs> because yeah. it was like a lifetime experience. And he had me 
speaking all over campus about what it was like. And uh, it really, it was a lifetime experience. And years later, I got to go back. Um, Ron Nesson, when Nixon was president, Ron Nesson had been with NBC News. He was Nixon's uh, uh, press secretary. And he and I became very good friends and he invited me back when Nixon was president. So oh, wow. I had some wonderful experiences at the White House. Oh, wow. All right. I, I think uh, let's move on to our special guest co-host, because he has another remarkable introductory story. It also has something to do with doing some work for nothing. So we're going to have Jesse Rule come on and talk about this little 10 hour pro bono project he had in the 2000, in 2007 and what happened with that little project. Well, thanks, Jim. It's so nice to be here. And June, is always a pleasure to see you again. Uh, I came to international student advising from a, a law background. And in 2007, there was this, there's a small nonprofit organization called Philadelphia House based in Philadelphia, where I was practicing at the time. And I agreed to do a couple of hours of work for them, helping them with the regulatory issue that they were facing. And Little by little, I got to become much more understanding and knowledgeable of what the international student community is like in Philadelphia. And I became more and more involved with that organization, ultimately becoming the director. And then I began working for a school that required or needed to hire a PDSO. And I was not quite familiar with what a PDSO was at that point. I had not even heard about CVS, but I thought, well, I have a law background, how complicated could this position be? Well, for those of us who've been PDSOs for any time, even one day, we know how complicated, in fact, and extensive the regulations are. I'd been a PDSO for about a year when I turned to a friend and said, you know, I really need some help with what I'm doing. And this, uh, she was a colleague and she said, well, you need to go see June in New York. And sure enough, I took my three level six day training with June and it's just been a delightful experience since then. Like you, Jim, she's been a mentor uh, friend. I also then had the wonderful opportunity to, to train with her for a couple of years before uh, the sad day and at the end of 2020 when she retired. But I think we'll talk a little bit uh, throughout the podcast today about some of the things that have happened after that. And I'm looking forward to sharing with your listeners as we go through today. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, let's June. Let's just work right into your early career. It was university administration right off the bat. Uh, it, when was it that you were asked to assume the tiny little role of foreign student advisor? Well, I mean, it, it seems like a fantasy now, and it probably will to your listeners. But when I graduated college in 1968, um, it, a bachelor's degree was your key to the universe. Uh, there were not many people that had bachelor's degrees, so you could pretty much go into any field you wanted to go into just on the basis of a bachelor's degree. So there was no such thing as career counseling. I was a history poli-sci major. My academic advisor in my senior year said, you know, we never discussed what you're going to do. What are you going to do with that history? Are you going to teach? What are you going to do? And I only had the frame of reference of the White House. I was very interested in going into news broadcasting, although Ray Shearer tried to talk me out of that. 
So my first job out of college was in a radio station, um, which is how Ray had started out in his career. So I decided to follow in his footsteps. So I worked in a radio station for several years, and then I decided that that was not for me. And so I started looking for a job and I settled on a college job and I settled on being an assistant registrar at Manhattan School of Music, a little um, music school of 900 students. Um, but one third of those students was foreign students, um, which is there aren't many schools that have one third of its population be foreign students. I was always interested in international students. I was the product of a cross-cultural family um, and uh, I had grown up basically listening to President Kennedy talk about the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps was a huge influence on my generation. So we kind of had the notion of service uh, as what was directing us towards careers. And so I went to Manhattan School of Music and there I was. Um, my boss encouraged me to get my master's degree um, in student affairs and teachers college, lucky for me, is right across the street uh, from Manhattan School of Music um, at Broadway and 122nd Street. So I started out uh, getting my master's degree there. And uh, when I graduated, um, I went to International House, which was also right on the Upper West Side. Um, International House being a residence hall of 500 international and American students founded by Rockefeller in the 20s for the purpose of cross-cultural communication. And I was the director of residence life there uh, for a number of years. And we did everything that could be possibly fun and interesting with international students, but never touched immigration never touched immigration. Students would come to me and ask me some questions about immigration and I would direct them uh, to their international student advisors. Um, I then let, went back to Manhattan School of Music and ended up being the their first director of student services. And one day I walked into the office and the president said, June, would you come into my office? I'd like to talk to you. And I thought, oh, geez, what have I done now? And he said, I want you to take over the international students. And I said, I already have a job. And he said, well, now you have two. And I knew enough because I had been working with international students for a very long time to be absolutely terrified of the immigration component. And so I said, so now I have to learn all this. And he said, oh, well, the person who we let go will train you. Ever had a person who's been fired <laughs> train you to do your job? And she almost laughed herself off her chair when I told her this. And she said, no way, you're on your own. So I was totally at sea. I had been a member of NAFSA for many, many years. So I knew enough about NAFSA to contact them. And they told me about what in those days they called the boot camp, which was at the regional conference where you went for basic training and it was a boot camp. It was a day and a half nonstop of training. I mean, you were there from sunrise to sunset and you know, you're covering everything 
in a day and a half. And the rest of the time they said, call other people. I right. said, what do you mean call other people? And they said, well, you know, you could call um, this person who's the, the PDSO over at Columbia and, you know, and she'll help you. And I said, call other people at other schools to help me learn how to do my job. And truthfully, that's what happened. I ended up having a list of like 10 people um, at various colleges that I would rotate. So I didn't become a pain to anyone on a regular basis, but I had the boot camp. I had their advisor's manual, which I don't think was any more than a um, hundred pages at the time and people to call. And the thought came to me was that this is so wrong. I mean, there should be training available uh, for people at all times. And I shouldn't have to be asking other people how to do my job. So that was where I first got the idea that training should exist. And then basically I went on and, and met other people. My mentor in the field was a man named Bill O'Connell, who was um, at LaGuardia Community College and was a very well-known author on the field. And he did a lot of training and was at NAFSA workshops. And he became my favorite person to talk to about all things regulatory. And we were regulatory nuts. Our favorite thing to do was to get together and have dinner and argue regulations. Yeah, and then the question there, I'm I'm sure you never caught up to Bill, but how how long did it take you to catch up to that list of 10 foreign student advisors that you were bothering? Was that a matter of 18 months? Was that a matter of two years? And suddenly you realized that you knew more than them or as much as them? <laughs> Well, I would say that it took me a year, probably a year to, let me see, when I went from Manhattan School of Music to St. John's, I started IETS in 1990, and I left, okay, I started at St. John's in 1988, so the starting it was within two years of, of me taking on the job or three years of taking on the job at Manhattan School of Music. But before that, Bill was doing some workshops and he had asked me to work with him on doing some just little training workshops that we did on the side. But that was, he had a little consulting and training business going or was getting going and he wanted me to be involved in it. And so we started doing those things together within the first year of me um, on the job. But that was really because he, he was the person who gave me the foundation for everything I taught. Um, he taught me the regulations are your friends, which is one of my favorite things to tell everybody in the field. And he taught me the difference between law, policy, and practice, which Jesse knows is the foundation of everything IETS taught, so that, you know, you didn't have to take what you were being spoon-fed by the government. You could go back and think about it for yourself. So he taught me independent thinking. And, you know, then he decided not to pursue the training and 
then I, I'm sure you're going to ask me how, how mm -hmm. I finally made the leap to it. I was that I had been talking about it so much that my husband finally said to me, are you ever going to stop talking about it and do it? So I owe it to Angel Devaras basically uh, for pushing me off that precipice and saying, oh, for heaven's sakes, just do it and be quiet about it. So I finally did and got started in 1990. And I did it part time at that time. I feel like I'm talking too much. No, no, and you're and you're you're keeping the job at St. John's, uh, but here you are now. You've got IETS going. You're doing it part time. So how did yeah, you? Yeah, actually... I started off doing it basically in the summers. Right. Um, only in the summers, and I started off doing it on a very small scale. Um with at the language institute so the classroom sizes were like i was happy if i had seven to ten people in one of those little tiny language uh classrooms right um it was hard at first it was very hard and i think the thing that was so hard was something i totally uh did not expect and that was my own profession gave me a hard time so I don't know if I've ever discussed that with either one of you, but the NAFSA members in the area were kind of like, who do you think you are? Oh. Why do you think you can do this? And I was going, well, why not? Well, but what you should just let NAFSA do the training. And I said, but NAFSA can't do it on an ongoing basis. Um, people need training all the time. So I had a lot of hard times and I thought everybody was going to welcome me with open arms going oh yes we need you to do this what a wonderful idea and instead I ran into a huge wall um, professionally and right. so I'm really proud I didn't stop because there were moments that I was so discouraged by the lack of support um, that I thought about it but the beginners who I was dedicated to, um, I just started with them and I could see that their response was like, glory be, hallelujah, somebody yes. help me out. And, uh, you know. <laughs> and I see uh, Jesse, Jesse, you have a question. Uh, it, it's so, it's hard for me to imagine you, June, as starting out or as a beginner. But I do, and as you know, we got a lot, we get a lot of calls from new PDSOs. So I'm curious, when you first became PDSO, what what was the the most difficult question, or what did you find to be the most challenging area of international advising to learn? At the very beginning, what was the everything right, when you was were... hard? I can't I I can't even think about one particular thing. I would say financial documents how to, as a matter of fact, the fellow who I asked, and I could still see him doing this. When I said, Jim, oh, this was a different Jim. I said, how do you evaluate financial documents? And he said, I, I put them to my head and go, hmm. That's what he told me. And I, one of my greatest skills was always as an administrator. So po policies and procedures 
was at the core of every job I have ever had. And so I was going, no, the meditation over the financial documents will not work for me. I have to come up with policies and procedures. And there were were none. I mean, I, I think we probably developed the ones that exist. Um, and now maybe there is more com- coming out from NAFSA and uh, Homeland Security than there used to be, but I'm not at all sure. Jim? Right. So your famous saying is, show us what you have. So did that come about that early in your career or is that something later in the late 90s or early 2000s? I came up with the procedures in my first two years at St. John's because when I went to St. John's, the way they in 1988, the way I-20s were being issued was if there was enough money for one academic year, which is not exactly what the regulations say. You know, I mean, I'm going students have got to be able to show that they can support themselves for the length of their stay in the United States. And how are you going to do that? What documents are going to convince you that there is sufficient funding for the length of the program of study? And it was being done in admissions and admissions did not want to be bothered with anything more than looking at one um document, a bank statement that had enough money in it. And they contacted me um, saying, why are we having, well, it was financial, the financial office. We're having a lot of students renege on their tuition. And I said, no, big surprise. And they said, why? And I told them, because you're not in compliance with federal requirements for your financial documents. And they said, so what do we do? And I said, well, I can come up with the, the plan but I would have to do it. So they switched it out of admissions into uh, international student services. And I, I had the policies and procedures developed. So that was, I think, that was before I even started IETS. I had done it uh, for the university. And so then I was able to teach it. And I really think that that was the main sticking point on I-20 issuance. Right. A- right. And then you're then doing the prospective students a favor because they're not showing up at a U.S. consulate with simply a bank statement. You've said, show us what you have. Let's see salary and income of your sponsor. And suddenly they're showing up with a lot more documents. And if the questions start coming, they're ready. And the university's concern was that they were going to lose students. Uh, They weren't going to be admitting as many students if they went into that kind of uh, you know, direction. And I said, well, then I said, what's the point in you're going to have students who can't pay uh, come here? And the bulk of them were coming as transfers and not from overseas that were getting into the trouble because they didn't even go through the consular office to be reviewed. In that, you know, about the financial documents, they were just able to get I-20s. They, I said, I'm sure that we have a reputation on the street for being easy on financial documents. And that's not something you ever want to have as your reputation. I said, so yeah, maybe we won't have as many right off the bat, but we'll have full paying customers. And instead of us not having more as many, we ended up having almost double the number. 
because the other piece of it was students were being denied visas on the basis of that one document. And so when we instituted the plan for uh, proper documentation, more students did uh, come. So it was a big change. So that's a long way around for your question, Jesse. But uh, yeah, that was the the real issue was the financial documentation. But, but what that immediately brought to mind, though, is how important our training is. Because when a PDSO understands the whole purpose of the F-1 visa, and we teach, remember time, activity, the two words, the activity being studying. So how can these poor students be successful students and complete their degree programs if they are concerned about where is their uh, tuition money going to come well, from? And I, I'm sure I told you this story. Because I did at one point during training. Maybe Jim heard it. But I said I was merciless about financial documents, and that was rooted in me seeing one of the foreign students I had known uh, early in my career homeless on the streets of New York. I'll never forget it. I saw this guy, and I said, oh, my God. And when I saw him, that changed everything for me and so people could say i was tough on financial documents and i was happy to be tough on financial documents it unfortunately it still happens i had a similar situation just over the thanksgiving weekend and it was the same a student oh. on the street no place to stay so now a question becomes here you are in the early 90s and you're, this is a side hustle still. You're still trying to make your reputation national. And you do have some pushback from a lot of people who were in NAFSA for a long time saying, this is not right, this should be all NAFSA doing it. And then they might not agree with all of your philosophies. So what went on in the early, in the mid, and even the late 90s? Were there battles going on so that you were still establishing your presence, getting your reputation out there, always great with the brand new advisors who loved you, but you're having some battles with some people who thought that they, that you should be doing everything, that everything should be done through NAFSA. And what is this person doing when she's not been in this as long as me? Well, gradually, just numbers uh, took over because I was training the beginners and I was presenting at every NAFSA conference I could possibly present at. I was getting myself on the, uh, you know, on the program. Um, I was, in those days, Immigration and Naturalization Service was very accessible I was very good friends with Lula Hampton, who was the chief school officer uh, for the New York region. I could pick up the phone and call Lula. I could ask her to be on a program with me and she would be happy to do it. Um, in fact, one of my favorite stories, it's a little bit in the very beginning, going back to my first experience at, at Manhattan School of Music was that when I was having to learn all of this on my own, I started going through all the files to familiarize myself with uh, the documents and what am I dealing with? And I found all these original documents sitting in students' files. And I'm going, 
this looks like an original government document. Why is this in a student's file? And I didn't even know what it was. And it was called a form I-538. I don't know if any of you know about that form. But anyway, back then, we authorized the first six months of practical training as DSOs. Can you imagine the power mm -hmm. of that? We authorized <laughs> the first six months. And in order to get the second six months, you had to file an application with the government. But in the authorizing of that first six months of practical training, the school had to notify immigration that the student had been authorized practical training. And the way it was done was by sending in the form I-538. So darn good thing that lady who was fired didn't train me because otherwise I would have been filing all those original documents and students' folders that were supposed to go to immigration. Can you imagine that? So I called up Lula Hampton and I said, I've got all these original I-538s and there were like 50 of them. That meant all of these students were technically working illegally because oh. immigration had not been notified. And so I went, oh, dear God in heaven, what are we going to do? The school's going to be in so much trouble. And she said, June, just batch them to me, send them to me, and I will take care of it. That's what she did. She, you know, she wasn't going to hold the school accountable for somebody. But nowadays you could hold the school accountable for bad training. But anyway, I'm, I'm sure I deviated. But that, that was such a major thing to me about legacy training or no training, what you could do to a student. No wonder I was so scared to death when I had been at iHouse and I said, at least I don't touch immigration because you could ruin a student's life if you didn't do things properly. And this was an example of that. What if I hadn't come there uh, to, to take over that job? So anyway, going back to your original question about uh, those days, just the numbers of people being trained um, were, I was getting more and more visibility. So the beginners were then taking on jobs and the beginners were then becoming active in NAPSA. And eventually the numbers of naysayers was going down and the, the people that were happy were going up and, um, I even remember one of my biggest naysayers said, well, uh, boy, I was wrong about that one. He, he said, I put my head in the sand and one day I pulled it out and there was, IETS was everywhere. And he said, I apologize, I was wrong. And I said, wow. So that's when I really thought I had made it. But back to the question, and now we're getting up to 2000 because uh, the language school, I kept on having to get bigger classrooms to teach in, and I was running out of space for them because there were more people wanting to come than I had room for. But the major trigger in the change was a massive, complete rewrite soup to nuts of the F1 regs in 2000. Right. Nobody knew anything. You know, it was like starting all over again. And I said I was going to do a workshop on, on the new regulations. And I went to Accent on Language where I was doing the training. And the room was standing room only. 
and they were all out in the hall. All these people who hadn't even registered just tried to get in. And I just didn't even know what to do with all these people. I mean, so that to me was the real eye opener um, of the need uh, for training and how IETS was so important to all these people trying to get their sea legs with new regulations. And of course, you know, when you're have anything like that happen, we've got to be on the ball first because you have to know all the answers, which is really right. right. So let me back up one year. It's the class of 1999. There's a young gentleman named Tom Serenides. He has his story. I have my story. So I am working as the Director of International Relations in Thailand. My time is finishing towards the end of May 1999. I start going to the internet room or internet cafes and sending out hot mails to my friends and saying what's going on in the USA. We decide on going back to New York City and one of my friends sends along NAFSA Region 10, Region 10 job posting because June Sadowski Devarez has posted on behalf of Barbara of New York Language Center. And this is literally two days before flying back. And three weeks later, in the famous 1999 economy, as in walk down the street, somebody comes out and mugs you and offers you a job. So three weeks after getting back to the United States, before getting paid, I'm sitting in F1 level one with June Sadowski Devarez. My good friend Tom, who's now at NYU, is sitting there with me. And here we are learning the regs before we even get into the he was he was also there before his job started the following week. So before getting paid, we're sitting in your classroom and doing level one and level two, I believe, right after that. And Tom's was at that time at the at the College of St. Elizabeth, correct? Yes. Yes. He was at St. Elizabeth. I mean, his story will still make me cry because I remember when you talk about major stories was I believe that at first they were not sure about hiring him and because he didn't have training. And I had a really good reputation with that college. I had trained a lot of their people. And I said to Tom, I said, I bet you anything, Tom. If you come and take level one and put that on your resume, you're going to get that job. And that's exactly what happened, if I'm if I'm not mistaken about, about that. Yes. So, as soon as he put it on his resume that he had had level one, and I said, then they'll pay for everything else, <laughs> I'm sure. And then they hired him because it was only the training that was the issue. And that was that early on you know, in 1999, that that was starting to happen, where schools were starting to require that they they get training. And since I was the only game in town, that was pretty much it. Yeah. And, and in my case, it came full circle, because I suppose I could have said, wait, I was training for you, you should have been paying me for those weeks where I was training for you. But later, when I went to Ukraine to adopt my son, 
it was supposed to be on a unpaid leave of absence and I got back and Barbara, the owner had said, I'm just paying you for the entire time because you deserve it. So it came full circle. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so it was really wonderful. I mean, and I I just loved everything I did. I loved helping people. I loved making the regulations simple. And as time went on, what I was finding out was that the training had to be longer, um, more in-depth, because if you could see what I did in the very, very beginning, I started going, no way. People need to have time to really absorb this. And, you know, people were saying, why don't you do all three levels at one time? I said, you want me to send you home in a body bag? I mean, because there's no way you're going to survive six days of training and and retain anything. So I tried every format I could. And then I came up with the two consecutive days uh, once a month. And I, it was the the best scenario that I could come up with for learning. Yeah, yeah, definitely, because you have a chance to absorb it. And then speaking of your policies and procedures, if you remember, Bertha Garay was working with me at the language school. Uh, she was learning everything from the start on her own until she took your F1 training. And then she and I had to write the policies and procedures for a proper attendance probation plan. Yeah, because how could you determine that a student was pursuing a full course of study at a language institute? I mean, you know, and I remember what you and I went through to come up with that formula. Yeah, yeah, and and there were schools that were using that to the advantage and abusing students because there were schools that were taking in one full year of tuition and then finding any excuse to kick that student out and put him out of status so they could just keep the tuition. Right. So, and we were determined that it was first you get an attendance warning letter, then you get the probation letter, you come in and sign it that you understand. And then you're really on the spot to right. have strong attendance for those next four weeks. And if you do so, you're back in good standing. And if you don't, and there you go with the termination because you've had your three strikes and you're out. And you had to come up with how many classes could you miss and still be considered in status. And I, that was a big deal. Yeah, they needed to be in 80% of their classes. It was a 20 hour per week program, but of course 18 hours is the full-time threshold. And some faculty didn't want to take attendance. That was another issue that people had to deal with. Because, well, if you can't take attendance and, and don't know when the student's there, how are you going to determine status? It was a major right. issue. Right. It, it, was not a, it was not an issue at New York Language Center. Yes, I know. <laughs> they made sure that that was job number one was attendance. Yeah, and for sure. It was kept very well. Now, and that's the whole thing with the language schools. They were also governed and still are by the New York State Bureau of Proprietary School that Supervision. That was a big deal when that came out. Right. And it's a good deal because they're very good. good. They they knew exactly what to look for. So they respected the fact when you had everything just right so that they could see it was all good. So basically later, let's let's bring it right in. Uh well, no, let's 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 say so there's the story. That's my start. I later got into international students marketing and recruitment. 
But here we are in 2000, next comes 2001, 9-11 happens. Uh, interesting about shortly after 9-11, there was no difference for Turkish students and many other Muslim countries about getting the visa. It still came down to that individual student, which was a good thing. So let's go to 2002. So tell us what happened in 2002. Well, INS had long been talking about an online tracking system. So back in the Middle Ages, when I started out, there was absolutely zero reporting to the government. Zero. Um, unless they asked. So you could get, and I only saw this happen twice in my entire career, um, you would get a spreadsheet of all of your international students, and they could have been international students from 10 years ago, um, that INS said, these are the students we have going to your institution, and you have to report on their status. And they could have been long gone. It was a nightmare for the profession and didn't work. Other than that, you were just supposed to keep internal records that a student was pursuing a full course of study. So, I had always taught the regulations, period. And that's what you were supposed to do, whether or not you reported or you didn't report, you were in charge of record keeping on your students. So that when Sevis was born, um, it was not a surprise to me. Everybody was up in arms saying, how in the world are we gonna have to report on these students? We've never had to do this before. And I said, but yes, you've had to keep records. But apparently a lot of schools were very, you know, slipshod at record keeping on their students. So for them, this was all new. So after 9-11, I knew life was never going to be the same again. I knew it immediately. Um, and what was interesting was even though INS had been working on this reporting system, they were fully prepared to abandon it. They were going to abandon it. We knew they were going to pull the plug on it. It would never work. 9-11 happened and they had to move full steam ahead on this broken system they were going to abandon. So the first version of Sevis, you can imagine, it was really just lovely mm -hmm. to have to deal with. Um, but it was changing everything in the field. So the warm, fuzzy days of working at International House when my major concern at the start of an academic semester was if I had enough coats available for the students coming from Africa who didn't know it was cold in New York City. Right. That was the kind of thing that we were dealing with back in those days. The major concern now in the entire field was compliance. That's all you had to do. If you talked compliance, then suddenly that was the name of the game. And so I started doing compliance workshops all over the countryside. I started, and they were full. I mean, they you standing room moment only in a compliance workshop. I was asked to do compliance consultations all over the countryside for where I would look at an individual institution's procedures to see if they were in compliance with federal requirements. 
um, and then make recommendations for what they needed to do to bring it into compliance. So it was like, all of a sudden it was huge. I mean, everything was, and I couldn't handle it all. I mean, I was getting so overwhelmed with just what I could do. So I started bringing on other people to work with me. Um, oh, the other piece of what I was doing was school approval process uh, for schools that wanted to get F1 or J1 approval and how to do that. And I used to do that. And I had to start you know, saying I can't handle those things. So I had colleagues I that started working with me. Um, Sal was doing, Sal Longarino um, at Fordham was doing our J1 training. Um, I had Ward Deutschman, who was my specialist in um, the school certification process and how to apply for it. And so I started bringing on other expert people uh, to work with me and focus in on other areas I just couldn't do because I could only specialize in the F1 CVIS essentials. And so that changed everything. Uh, and that was all because of CVIS. Um, and then things were not so, so much fun anymore. We took on a very adversarial role with the government, which was unfortunate because before that it was not adversarial. Um, but and it, that, that is a wonderful place to do a 30 second pause because we're going to call this part one. We're all going to take a break. And in 30 seconds, we're going to come back and do part two. And Jesse's really going to join in on this one because we're going to release this podcast in two episodes because this is fascinating. So so this is Ed Up International, end of episode three. We were going to go for 45 minutes and be done, but we're going to be going for longer than that. So this is going to become two episodes, episode three and four. So here we are at the end of episode three. We will see you next week with episode four. <laughs>